Hi, you're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Frank Ferrastro, Senior Vice President of CSIS, and I'll be your host for today's segment where we'll be looking at gasoline, biofuels, the renewable portfolio standard, and related issues. And joining us today is Nilas Nuriker. Nilish is a Vice President and Senior Analyst at Clearview Energy Partners here in Washington where he covers renewable fuels, carbon markets, and oil and gas issues. Neelish is a good friend, former colleague. He previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Department of Energy. He was an advisor, an energy advisor at the White House and the U.S. Department of State, and he also served in the Congressional Research Service. Prior to his government service, he was with BP. So Neelish, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Frank. It's a pleasure to be here. So today's topic is the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standard. It originated in the Energy Policy Act in 2005, uh, before the shale revolution, and was expanded and extended in the Energy Independence and Security Act of 2007. It was created at a time when we thought we were running out of conventional fuels, and this was a supplement for security reasons. But so much has changed in the last decade. Can you bring us up to speed how we got there and where we are? Sure. You have to put yourself in the mindset of the mid-2000s when you start thinking about how the RFS was set up. So originally established in 2005 and then substantially revamped and expanded in 2007. In 2007, we'd seen oil prices and gasoline prices largely rising since 1998. Over those, say, 10 years, I think nine of the 10 years had seen net oil imports increasing and a significant concern that U.S. import dependence uh, for oil was going to continue to rise with rising demand. So that created a lot of concern about energy security, about the economic impacts, uh, and, and environmental concerns that led to the creation of the, the renewable fuel standard, particularly in its uh, 2007 form. So Congress created the RFS to mandate more biofuels use in transportation. It set annual requirements that increase up to about 36 billion gallons in 2022. Of that, 21 billion gallons have to be advanced biofuels, mostly cellulosic, but also some biomass-based diesel. And the unspecified portion has basically become an implicit mandate for conventional ethanol, though it can also be met by advanced biofuel credits. EPA implements the requirement by giving biofuels renewable identification number credits, which in a sense are the currency of the RFS. Obligated parties under the RFS, and these are mostly refiners, have to turn in a certain amount of these credits each year. Refiners that own distribution terminals and retail stations can earn credits by blending biofuels into gasoline and diesel that they sell. Merchant refiners that don't own these parts of the supply chain where blending takes place have to buy credits from those who do. Congress gave EPA some discretion in how those annual requirements are implemented. EPA has some waiver authorities that it can use in particular circumstances. So that's the general structure that was set up in 2007. So let me just go back and put some of this in context. So... U.S. total demand right now is like 20 million barrels a day of liquid fuels. Um, gasoline consumption is around 9 million barrels a day. So there's a, purport, a portion of that that's uh, ethanol blend or, or biofuels, renewable fuels. In the time period that you talked about, so 2006 oil prices were $35. 2007, they doubled to $65. By 2008, they were $150, right? So this concern was that we're not uh, having enough uh, domestic production 
and fuel consumption through EIA's estimate was continuing going up. Our gasoline consumption looked like it was going to go up. Um, I'm going to kind of walk you into the blend wall with this one because the notion of Congress then setting absolute target numbers that you had to achieve year on year presupposed that gasoline demand would continue to rise. And what happened was with higher prices, as you well know, gasoline consumption plateaued and then actually started going down for a couple of years. But yet the, the renewable fuels requirement continued to grow. Is that an accurate representation? Yeah. So three separate things happened between, you know, over the last decade since that system for the RFS was set up. First, our import dependence that we were so concerned about when we set up the system has changed dramatically. So oil consumption and gasoline consumption in the U.S. didn't increase. It stayed roughly flat. And and, uh, that has a lot to do with efficiency improvements. It has a lot to do with the recession. Also, uh, at least as important is the shale revolution, where we're producing more than twice as much oil domestically as we did then. And the result is that our import dependence is probably about a fifth of what we thought it was going right. to be exactly. when when we set up the RFS in, in the current structure. And what that means is the, the gasoline pool that you have to put these biofuels into is a lot smaller than might have been, th- than was envisioned. Uh, blending up to about 10% of gasoline with ethanol is relatively straightforward. Uh, enhances the the way that gasoline burns in the car. It it provides uh, needed octane, oxygenate requirements, so it helps it burn better and cleaner. After 10%, you have an issue where the infrastructure and vehicles aren't set up to absorb as much gasoline. So there's a 10% blend wall. The E10 blend wall is uh, the point beyond which it's difficult to put gasoline into the pool. And we hit that point around 2013. Right. So I mentioned earlier these renewable identification number credits that uh, sort of are the vehicle for compliance. So these are the RINs that people talk about. Right. And so prior to 2013, prior to getting to the blend wall, these were pennies. And uh, early 2013, you get to the blend wall and you see them shoot up. And that reflects the difficulty in blending this additional amount of biofuels into a fuel pool that's not as large as was envisioned. And it's from that point that you start seeing concerns about how this pie that is the motor, the fuel mix is is not as large as, as was envisioned and who gets what share. So uh, in 2014, 15, 16, the EPA had some challenges in how to issue their annual rule. They invoked a general waiver that uh, Congress had set up in case there was insufficient supply of biofuels. And they used that general waiver, invoking it, saying that because there wasn't enough gasoline in which to blend the biofuel, that represented insufficient supply opportunity. And so they waived some of the requirements that Congress had set up. Now, that waiver was subsequently overturned in in court. And so EPA is now left with this remand for their 2016 uh, annual rule where they have to consider how to make up for what they had waived uh, because the courts found that they had inappropriately used the, the congressional waiver authority. And I don't want to add too much of a, uh, another layer of complexity for our listeners, but this is also tied into CAFE standards and the way people, um, uh, cars that were capable of running uh, multiple fuels. 
and how auto manufacturers are issued credits by being able to produce those, but yet only a small fraction of them actually use E85. A lot of it's regional and where the supply is, but they get credit for that. But then when you when you run it against volume of alternative fuels that's actually put into place, you have separate issues. Right. Auto manufacturers under the Corporate Average Fuel Economy Standard Program got extra credit for right. producing E85 uh, capable vehicles. And a number of E85 vehicles were produced, but they didn't, apparently they didn't use E85 that often. They they tended to use regular gasoline. And there have been a, a number of issues that, that folks have ascribed that to. Among the reasons that the E85 vehicles haven't used as much E85 as, as one might have thought is in part because of infrastructure, that there weren't that many E85 pumps. Right. And because going back to your infrastructure point, you would have to install new pumps at retail stations um, with additional tankage. And people aren't either inclined to do that or if they don't think that they have the market necessarily where people would come in and, and drain the E85 tank. It's it's a commodity business that they sell. So EPA dealt with this issue to some degree in 2011 because uh, biofuels producers petitioned EPA to say, look, we, we need to be able to allow E15 uh, in, in commercial use, and EPA examined it and looked at concerns around vehicles being able to use E15, and ultimately they provided a, a partial waiver. They said, look, you can use E15 in vehicles that are model year 2001 and later. The other thing that EPA did at the time was consider this issue of uh, reed vapor pressure. There's, without getting into the details, I know. there are certain restrictions on um, gasoline that's sold in summer months, and there is a waiver that is applied to E10 that makes it a little easier to, to manufacture, given those restrictions, than E15, which doesn't have this particular e, uh, RVP waiver. And so at the time when EPA decided that you could use E15 in model year 2001 and later vehicles, they also decided that, uh, that they EPA could not extend the RVP waiver to E15. Now, the the concern about vehicles uh, gets easier, I think, over time. Mm-hmm. So as the vehicle fleet turns over, we think probably around 90% of vehicles on the road today are 2001 or later at this point. Uh, the the Renewable Fuel Association has done some work looking specifically at, at manufacturer statements about vehicles and has estimated that around 25-30% of cars on the road today can take E15 and have some sort of endorsement by their manufacturers and that 80 or so percent of vehicles rolling out of uh, the lots today can take E15 according to their manufacturers. So the issue or the bottleneck at vehicle at the point of vehicles is getting easier. The RVP waiver, the point of sale constraint, remains in place and has become a political issue. So since we are in Washington, let's talk about the politics. Every time you create a program that has a constituency that sees an opportunity, even if circumstances change, getting a change in the regulations that that gores or advantages one side or the other is extremely difficult. Let's talk about the politics of it. So towards the end of 2016, I think the markets saw announcements around who was coming to the Trump administration, and they figured that RFS requirements were likely to be relaxed. You can see RIN prices start to fall pretty dramatically in December uh, of 2016 and into January. Now, we can think of RIN prices as reflecting the ease or difficulty of meeting RFS requirements. And 
Later in 2017, in the spring and the summer, two factors helped those RIN prices rebound. First, biodiesel supply became more complicated. Congress had let a biodiesel tax credit expire at the end of 2016. And then the Commerce Department started considering countervailing and anti-dumping duties on Argentina, which was a major source of biodiesel imports, also on Indonesia. Biodiesel plays a particularly important role in the RFS. It not only meets the biomass-based diesel requirement, but it also helps meet the general advanced requirement and part of the implicit conventional requirement that exceeds the E10 blend wall. The second driver was how EPA lost a court challenge to its use of waivers. In effect, this limited EPA's discretion when waiving congressional requirements, and it may require EPA to make up part of the volumes it waived in 2016. The Trump administration started looking at regulatory reform options for the RFS over 2017. Early on, they considered looking at changing the point of obligation, moving it from refiners to blenders who actually blend the biofuels into gasoline and diesel. Uh, EPA also considered increasing the supply of RINs, uh, according to reports, by letting RINs from exported ethanol be eligible to meet RFS requirements. They also looked into waiver authority options that could reduce demand for RINs, particularly on biomass-based diesel. There was a sharp backlash from biofuels producers, as you might expect and from farm state representatives in Congress. Ultimately, they appear to have forced EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt to publicly agree that he wouldn't pursue these reform options. Well, Pruitt appeared to have a lot of interest in RFS reform, and he looked to have just about one lever left at this point to relax RFS requirements, and that was this small refiner's exemption for disproportionate economic hardship that has been getting a lot of attention lately. And he pulled that lever pretty hard. These are exemptions that let small refineries uh, be excused from their RFS requirements. EPA releases pretty limited data about these exemptions, but some of the information started to come out over the course of 2017, and particularly early this year, and uh, early this year, we saw RIN prices start to be weighed down by this information sort of leaking out. Now, on the one hand, these exemptions don't appear to be reducing blending much, if at all. Um, but these exemptions are offered retroactively. And basically, they're leading to an increase in the amount of RINs that can be banked for use later. Biofuels advocates are now focused on these exemptions, not surprisingly. They want the administration to offer fewer exemptions, or they want uh, the administration to consider asking other refiners, particularly large refiners, to make up for uh, the volumes that are excused for small refiners. And on the legislative front, so Senator Cornyn, the other senator from Texas, also had legislation, although I haven't seen any pen put to paper yet. It's been discussed conceptually. Um, the 15, E15, either as a percentage or 15 million gallons, depending on what you think the the president actually agreed to or proposed, and then the amount of exemptions on the refiner side versus the constituency in the agricultural states, which are a lot of his electoral base. We're heading quickly into the fall, and this election cycle, there's not likely anything to be done between now and the end of the year. Yeah, I can't speak to what exactly is in different pieces of legislation, because I think that it's probably still evolving. Mm -hmm. uh, so Senator Cornyn, um, Congressman Shimkus, uh, the chairman of the Environment Subcommittee for House Energy and Commerce, Commerce Congressman Flores and, and others have been looking at legislative changes to the RFS. Um, it, Congressman Shimkus has held a, a couple of hearings now where he's been looking at uh, what some of the challenges are to the RFS and been exploring this idea of a, an octane standard as a potential substitute 
uh, to the RFS. Some people would suggest that it be a complement, not a substitute. And in fact, that, that's part of the debate. But So there are these ideas that are being considered um, either a combination of some of the things uh, that had been considered on, on regulatory reform, but could have faced legal challenge, or this idea of an octane standard. Um, all of these are difficult issues for Congress to consider in a good year. And this is a difficult year. It's an election year. There's a number of challenging issues that Congress is considering. And even though uh, there's one party that has control of both houses, this RFS issue is one that doesn't run by party lines. It bisects the parties. Yeah. Uh, So it seems very challenging to move legislation that would divide uh, the parties up the way that RFS reform might especially in a year like this where you've got midterm elections coming up. You also have the prospect of, though, increasingly higher prices as we get towards the end of the year, just on on oil side. Right. One of the things that seems it would be conducive to RFS reform that would sort of push Congress past the threshold of uh, of how challenging this issue is, is you know the potential for high gasoline prices at a time when, say, if RIN prices were also high. Uh, because when gasoline prices get high, it leaves policymakers looking for any tool they can to uh, be responsive to constituent concerns. And so you know, one thought is they might look at RINs. But right now, RIN prices aren't have actually fallen quite a bit as a result of those small refiner exemptions. So EPA Administrator Pruitt, um, we now have Andy Wheeler as the acting administrator. Does that make a difference in the, the composition or the timing of rules in terms of priorities of what EPA might do? There could be a change in how EPA administers the program. Certainly, uh, Administrator Pruitt seemed to be particularly interested in this issue, and it, it took up a lot of uh, time and effort on, on his part, or it seemed to. Um, and a future administrator may see the the you know, the challenges in the political quagmire it created for him and may be more reluctant to push that hard on an issue that um, cuts across his, his own party and, and the Republican constituency. Uh, we've, we saw uh, just uh, last week EPA issued a letter to Senator Chuck Grassley that uh, explained more of the details around these small refiner exemptions that he's been asking about. Uh, how EPA chooses to administer that going forward, we'll have to see. Uh, but you'll certainly, I, I would expect, continued pushback from um, farm state congressmen and senators on the, the small refiner exemption program and um, pressure on EPA to, to rein it back somehow or to, to explore reallocation. EPA did seem to briefly consider reallocation, um, but the administration got a lot of appeared to get a lot of pushback on that and, and shelved the idea very quickly uh, ahead of this proposal for 2019 requirements coming up. And, and the exemptions, uh, at least through the summer and, and the beginning of this year, went more broadly than a lot of people expected. It wasn't just small refiners, but there was some fairly substantial refiners that also got. The, the small refiner exemption applies to refineries that have a throughput, the amount of crude that they process is 75,000 barrels a day or less. There have been news reports that a number of companies that are large companies but have small refineries uh, have applied for these exemptions. And according to a letter that EPA recently sent to Senator Charles Grassley, uh, they've 
granted 29 of 33 small refiner exemption applications for 2017 that, that came to them, and they're still processing the other four. So it, it's possible that uh, a lot of the folks that have been applying for these have received them. So you've clarified a lot of this um, and made a complex issue in some ways less complex, in some ways equally complex. Um, final thoughts on where, where you think this is going and the, and the role of RFS in terms of our overall energy policy. So there's a few critical junctures ahead of us. The annual rulemaking cycles in process, that should be completed uh, around the end of November. Congress only established annual requirements through 2022. After that, it left it to EPA to decide what the requirements were going to be. This is one of the issues that's driving Congress to look at legislative reform of the RFS because uh, on both sides, uh, there may be concern about giving that much autonomy to EPA. On the side of obligated parties, there may be concern that EPA would increase requirements. On the side of biofuels producers, there may be concern that EPA would decrease requirements. And so uh, this post-2022 period could be the driver for legislative reform to distill what are, I think, the three most important issues right now uh, amongst a set of very complex uh, policy and, and market considerations, I think, one, what happens with small refiner exemptions, two, the E15 read vapor pressure waiver, which would ease uh, E15 sales during the summer, and three, uh, this legislative interest in the octane standard and how legislators try to weigh concerns uh, from a number of different parties about what happens post-2022 into momentum for some sort of legislative reform before then. So you brought in, um, in discussing this, we've talked about trade, tariffs, infrastructure, tax incentives, cafe standards, renewable credits, when we talk about supply, we could get into issues like uh, the IMO, stresses on refiners, um, even the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at some point. So you've given us additional fodder for future, future broadcasts for sure. So, Neelish, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Frank Verastro. This has been another installment of Energy 360 for the CSIS Energy National Security Program. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>